Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of Crossover Daily, Sports Illustrated's daily NBA podcast. I'm your host, Rohan Nadkarni. Today on the show, we'll discuss the Heat's second straight come-from-behind victory in the Eastern Conference Finals. Why is Boston struggling so much with the Heat zone? Is the clutch gene real for Jimmy Butler? And what's going on with Jason Tatum? Joining me will be the Ringer's Rob Mahoney. Let's start the show. Joining us now on Crossover Daily is a barbecue enthusiast and one of the tallest people I've ever met. He used to work for this humble magazine we call Sports Illustrated. He's currently a staff writer at The Ringer. Please welcome to Crossover Daily my good friend Rob Mahoney. Rob, how's it going, man? It's going great. All those things still very true. <laughs> it is it is shocking how tall you are in person, and I, I think that you need to be a little bit more upfront with it in your online presence. It's very hard to find photos of you online and the research I was doing for this podcast. Uh, it's very hard. I searched Rob Mahoney celebrity height, nothing came up. <laughs> it's just, you know, I don't know what you're hiding, man, but it, it's starting to it's starting to become obvious. I think you want that reaction up front. You want to you want to leave a little something to the imagination and to the first impression in this case. <laughs> I appreciate that. I can respect that. So uh, let's get cut right to the chase here. Uh, game two between the Celtics and the Heat. Uh, the Heat with a, a come from behind victory, a, another comeback win, uh, this time with a huge third quarter, really flummoxing Boston with the zone there in the second half. Um, I, I don't even know if there's a ton to get to in this game because there's really one glaring obvious thing here. And that it's for the second round in a row, Boston's offense is having a lot of trouble with his own defense. Uh, what did you see in that second half? Why do you think Boston is struggling so much right now uh, trying to penetrate Miami's zone? It's a weird thing because 
when you're talking about teams that could break down zones, I think what you want, you know, there are a couple different approaches to that. Obviously, you could go like the high post passing route. They don't really have a big who could do that. If anything, Robert Williams is probably the closest thing they have to a big who can kind of read the floor. He didn't really see minutes in this game at all. Other than that, you're looking at a lot of movement. You're looking at baseline cutting. You're looking at trying to overextend or overload the zone. And to do those things, you need a lot of good passers. And that's one thing that kind of jumps out about Boston is they have guys who can move the ball. They have guys who end up getting assists because their execution against man stuff is usually pretty good. But this isn't a team with a lot of like plus level passers across positions. And when your point guard is, I don't know, 5'8", uh, in Kemba Walker, like you need a little height, you need a little bit of playmaking. And that's where ultimately I think Jason Tatum is going to have to take on, you know, a bit more of a primary role in terms of reading the floor in those situations. Uh, the same way you're surprisingly tall, Kemba Walker is surprisingly short. I think I might be taller than him and I, I'm not a particularly tall man. I, I think you bring up a great point in terms of playmaking. You know, there was a possession. I can't remember now if it was in the third or fourth quarter. Tatum has the ball on the right wing, the heater in, in a zone. Every other Celtic is, is basically on the other side of the court. You know, they clear out for Tatum, except Tatum is staring at, at three defenders. I mean, the paint is completely walled off, and he drives and, and misses a shot in the lane. That's really where you need either some side-to-side movement, someone flashing to the middle of the floor, uh, give him something. And what's surprising to me is Boston had to know this was coming, right? It, right. Uh, what I'm shocked is how my, much by surprise it seemed to take them. I mean, if anything, I thought it was kind of gutsy of the Heat to stick with it both as long as they did and especially for the final possession where Jalen Brown gets Mm -hmm. a pretty clean look at a corner three to tie the game within, you know, I think it was the last 20 seconds or so. That's, you know, you would think that if you throw this stuff at the Celtics long enough, there's going to be some diminishing returns. But as you mentioned, we're not looking at two rounds of this. And, you know, I'm sure the Heat are very thankful for, you know, having seen that Raptors series. And you can always count on Toronto to throw some interesting stuff out there. But to know that they have this zone in their back pocket, I think the Heat had to feel pretty good about their chances, at least to start the series. We'll see how things play out over the rest of the way and if they can learn from their mistakes. But the zone looks really good right now. And also, we may need to come up with a name for this kind of zone. In, oh, in which, oh I, have, I have the name for you, Robert. Please don't, please don't say Spo Zone. It's the I, I know. Spozone layer. It's the Spozone layer. It's the Spozone uh, layer. That that's what you call the two forwards up at the front. The Spozone layer. How do I copyright do I, copyright my brother for that one? On your how do I leave this podcast? Like, where's the leave meeting button? <laughs> just the here? eject. <laughs> but no, just with the the length up top, especially mm-hmm. you know you have Derek Jones Junior uh, uh, up there, you have Jay Crowder up there, you have Andre Iguodala up there. And especially like we're talking about with Kemba Walker, when your guards are that small and you're playing him and smart together at a lot of times, you know, that that's a lot to, to see over the top of, to try to penetrate as a passer, I think. For sure. Uh, it's interesting, you know, as much as we are talking about the zone and it, it definitely hurt Boston's offense. You talk about that look Jalen Brown got late in the game when it was 104, 101, he had a really clean look from the corner to tie the game. You could also argue this game came down to two or three shots in the last two minutes Brown missing an open three. Kemba missed a really good look uh, coming off a screen. Uh, he had a, a wide open look at a three. He missed it. Meanwhile, Goran Dragic hits a mid-range step back. He hits a kind of a garbage late shot clock three uh, over Tice late in the game. For all of Boston's you know offensive troubles, and, and they have struggled against the zone, the margin in this series is just paper thin. I mean, they were right there uh, to win this game. That has to at least be somewhat encouraging for them. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what makes this series and this matchup so fun is that 
both of these teams, like these are really good teams, and they're also not above an eight minute dry spell of offense where, you know, the threes just stop going for the heat, or as we saw in stretches this game, Miami kind of subtly low key is not a very good finishing team. Like they don't have many guys who can actually finish through contact that well, which is I think part of why Jimmy Butler plays for fouls as much as he does. Um, And so they can go through stretches where they're just not scoring, but I think you're right. Like the zone is the obvious thing. It's the thing that jumps off the screen because it's so different, but this game is like a couple of offensive rebounds away, a couple of deflections away. And, and really Boston, in terms of the numbers, didn't score that poorly. Like their offense was good enough to win this game. They just didn't defend well enough. And Miami got off a ton of threes. Right. So let's let's talk about that that Boston defense, actually, because I think, you know, Miami's been a, in a rare kind of a situation for the Heat, a better offensive team than defensive team for much of this year. They, they had a top 10 offense. During the regular season, you know, we saw how good their three-point attack was against Milwaukee. It, it really was Bam Adebayo, though, I, I think, in that third quarter, uh, who changed the game for him. He just dominated in the paint. You know, he had a a pretty subpar first half, and then in the pick and rolls, uh, was just dominating in the paint, catching lobs, uh, getting whatever he wanted in the paint. Why do you think he was able to, to explode the way he did in the third quarter? Because it, it's not like Miami was running something for and it was just a lot of pick and rolls and I was, I was pretty surprised that Boston was getting pierced uh, as much as they were on that action I mean I think the reality of it is that Miami is really hard to guard in those actions once you establish a couple of the threats on the floor so you, you have a first quarter where Duncan Robinson hits I think four threes in that first quarter that's now pulling a defender constantly who's supposed to be helping in the pick and roll we saw a couple times where Daniel Tice was just exasperated because the rotation wasn't there to help him out because he was showing out on the initial pick and roll. And then, you know, you see you have that option. You have Goran Dragic playing a great game overall. He really caught late, but, you know, is a constant threat, is constantly probing, is demanding of bigs in a different way, certainly than a guy like Kendrick Nunn is because he just occupies their attention for a little longer. So that's something that you have to take into account. And then also it's, you know, it's guys like Jimmy Butler who, you know, by cutting almost simultaneously with the role at times, they distract the defender who's supposed to be the low man, who's supposed to be rotating over to stop Bam Adebayo at the rim. They they occupy him for just a couple seconds, or maybe it's just a quick turn of the head, and that's enough for Bam to get a dunk. For a guy who's that athletic, who can go up for a lob, it's, you know, when all the pieces are clicking, it's a really deadly thing. But as we've seen for Miami, that isn't always the case. And for a defense like Boston, they should be able to do better than they did in that quarter. For sure. You know, it, Duncan Robinson, I think, probably had his best game of the playoffs today just considering the stakes and what happened to him in game one uh you wrote a feature about Duncan today that was great just how the heat discovered this guy the scouting that went into finding someone like him I really thought this was going to be a tough series for him I didn't expect him to have any games like the one he had today just because of how good Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown are on the wings what I think what it really goes to show is just how difficult he is as an offensive presence because you know, there are possessions where Jalen Brown is just hauling ass and fighting around every screen, same for Marcus Smart, and shutting him down. And, and then somehow you look up and he's still taking eight threes, nine threes, ten threes, or whatever it is. Uh, I just think that's a great point about Miami's attack. So much of what's happening away from the ball, the attention that he draws, uh, you know, it's been like this all season. As good as Jimmy and Bam are, uh, they were a minus without Duncan Robinson for a lot of the year. He's He's such a key part of what they want to do. Uh, another, I think, thing we have to talk about is 
Jimmy Butler in the fourth quarter is like something weird is just going on. And, and I don't want this to devolve into like clutch gene talk or, or even closer talk necessarily, but there's times when it looks like he's almost sleepwalking through a game or too passive. And then all of a sudden in the fourth, you know, jumping passes at the top of the zone, uh, getting to the lane. Uh, he, he really just seems to be playing a different style of basketball down the stretch. He does. You know, I, not only am I open to the clutch gene talk with Jimmy Butler, okay. I, I mean, I'm open to mysticism. I'm open to astrology. I don't know what planets are in retrograde right now, but like, I'm open to any explanation you may have for how this is happening because he really does come up with all, and it's not just the baskets, it's all the little plays too. I think the one thing that jumps out for me with him, especially late in games when defenses tend to be, they're, they're engaged and they're active, but they're also a little bit conservative is Jimmy is a guy who, if, if he thinks there's, there's potential for a deflection, if he thinks he can get a finger on a ball and knows that there's going to be contact, he'll still go for it. And we saw that play out in a couple cases in this game where he's able to poke away some live balls that ended up going the other way for the heat into fast breaks on plays that could have been called fouls by other referees, that could be called fouls in certain situations. But I think by knowing that late in games, referees are going to allow a certain level of contact that they don't necessarily want to be front and center on an off-ball play like that, you can play into that a little bit, and it turns into you know Jimmy saving a pass behind his back, going out of bounds, and then Duncan Robinson hitting him for a dunk right afterwards. Just, I mean, there were four or five big plays like that where Jimmy just got a hand on a, on a Celtics pass uh, that he probably shouldn't have. Uh, that's such a great point that you bring up about Jimmy, his aggressiveness in those moments. It's almost like he's the only player on the floor willing to be reckless in the in the last three minutes. Like, yes, the only one willing to gamble, willing to do the things that you know, your coaches probably tell you not to do after you get burned once or twice in the first half. And that's to his credit that, that he has the confidence to take those risks. And that also, he, you know, he's talented enough to, to back that up. Uh, another guy who I think played uh, an understated role in this game was Derek Jones Jr. And, you know, he took over for Kendrick Nunn's minutes basically in the second half and even got an extended burn in the fourth quarter. I don't think he was expecting to play that much. He looked gas by the time he finally came out of the game the difference he made at the top of Miami's zone I don't know that he's necessarily going to be a swing piece in this series but I do think just moving forward having him in over none uh, just makes Miami that much more difficult uh, on defense well we saw it late in game one too when you know Miami can just throw out these ridiculous defensive lineups <laughs> yes. if, if, if you need to get like a one-stop one possession they just have incredible personnel. They for might have. They like might that. have the best five for something like that left in I, the playoffs. I think so. And some of it is the fact that you know you can put Derek Jones on a guard, you can put him on a big, and mm -hmm. however they run the pick and roll, you can switch it, and it, you're going to feel comfortable with that. And when you're running the zone that they are, you know you can still run a lot of high ball screen action against a zone defense, mm -hmm. especially with, you know NBA zones are kind of more matchup oriented anyway. And so the fact that you know if you have, you know, say Derek Jones Jr. and Jimmy Butler up top. Those guys are interchangeable as far as whoever they're, they're going to be guarding. You can flip the screens if you're the Celtics. You can try to work the angles. You can do whatever you want. It's going to be really hard to get Kemba going downhill or to get any of these guys going downhill with a ball screen when those two guys are involved. And that's just, it's so much length to deal with. It's a lot, of, you know, Derek Jones is also really good at anticipating angles, anticipating passes and stuff like that too. I think he's a he's a really nice kind of niche player for this team, and he fits that role pretty perfectly. He's such an interesting player. You know, I, I probably watch more Heat games uh, than most people, and, and I'm I'm intrigued by him because, you know, in 2008 he would have been stuck playing small forward, and he just would have never really made an impact in the league. I don't think. 
on defense, you know, he's this ultimate, you know, switchy guy, so much athleticism. And then on offense, he plays like a big, like you want yeah. him screening and pick and rolls. Uh, you want him in the dunker spot on the baseline, incredible offensive rebounder. Uh, one thing I think to keep an eye on, you know, the heat have really struggled uh, at the end of uh, first quarters and in the second quarter playing those Kendrick Nunn minutes, Kelly Olenek's been on the floor then too. When Derek Jones Jr. is in the game, it kind of allows Olenek to float on the perimeter on offense where he's more comfortable. And DJJ can kind of take over that that big role in the floor on offense. And I, I wonder if how that'll be a wrinkle in the series moving forward. I mean, I could definitely see it. You know, Olenek, I think, can be a little bit better than he's shown so far. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even he if he struggled, were, yeah. It was not a great game for him. And I think some of it is just, with some of these guys, especially a guy like Olenek, you get it into their head that, okay, these are this is what your shot is going to look like in this series. These are the opportunities that are going to be there for you. I thought we saw him kind of rush those things a little bit. You know, just the idea that he needs to be an influence as a stretch big led him to rush some of those attempts that, you know, under normal circumstances, you might like to see him, you know, kick back out to reset the offense or what have you. But I think he can be better. I think I think none, honestly, you could see this kind of directionally in the series where he plays about this much or just isn't much of a factor and you lean more on Derek Jones, lean more on Iguodala. Uh, we've seen Tyler Hero stretched pretty far already. I don't know how much, how many more minutes he's going to play over the course of the series than he has already. But you know, the pieces are, are just really working for Miami in an interesting way. And that's that's always been the appeal of this group is that they have so much, you know, so many pieces that can be swapped in and out to get you so many different kinds of looks. It really is fascinating because I think typically we love teams like this in the regular season, but they don't always work well in the playoffs. I mean if you want to go back to like the early 2010s Nuggets, for example, I mean, Andre Iguodala was there. It was kind of a similar vibe, right? They had a lot of good pieces, but it didn't necessarily work in the postseason. I want to go back to the Celtics because, you know, I think we both agree, like this is a toss-up series. It could easily be 1-1. It could easily be 2-0 Boston. It's just going to come down to those few shots. Is there anything that, that kind of leapt off the screen for you in this game? Like this is an obvious adjustment. This is an obvious change they need to make. In game three, I mean, I, I don't think it's more Ennis Cantor minutes, frankly. Uh, is there something that, that jumped out to you? Like, this seems like an obvious thing they should try in game three. It's a good question. I mean, I think some we've covered some of the zone stuff already, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll leave that be. Um, I mean, maybe there's nothing. I mean, it might just be as simple as like, hey, hit a couple more threes and, and they don't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to... From the combination of the offensive rebounding disparity and the three-point shooting disparity, you have to equalize some of that. Like you can't be giving up that many extra possessions and and turning the ball over the way that they have. You know, like the, I think the you, you know if, if you're Brad Stevens, you're looking at that second quarter film, which I thought was a great execution quarter for them. That was really clean offense by the Celtics. Like they're probably the best that they've played in the series. You want to go back and look at that and say, okay, what was really working? Because Miami is playing some zone then. What are our angles there? What can we kind of stretch out and exploit and take away from those minutes? Because the rest of it just got so ugly. It just got so ragged. And again, it's not like Miami was showing you a diversity of looks per se. You know, they'll toggle back and forth some between the zone and the man, but they played a lot of zone in the second half. So you're going to have to have some better solutions for that, to say the least. Well, one thing I'll say, at least on the defensive end, is I'm not saying they need to play Grant Williams 20 minutes. I do think he gave them an interesting look in the fourth quarter uh, during the brief run he had when Boston was switching everything. Dragic obviously had a big game, but I I think we both acknowledge he hit a couple shots towards the end that easily could have gone out. 
I don't think Miami has as much one-on-one juice uh, to really punish Boston if Boston switches everything. I mean, Bam is a great player. I don't think he's very comfortable operating out of the post uh, routinely. That's one thing I'm surprised Boston didn't try a little bit more of, even with Tice in the game, was just switching a little bit more uh, because I, I don't know that, that Miami has ever been a, a team that's going to hunt mismatches and, and go one-on-one, and that's the way they're going to get their offense. I mean, they're kind of constitutionally opposed to it, you know, just right. by the by the nature of what they have and, and the, you know, their personnel. These are not guys who are going to attack those situations. You know, the exceptions to that being maybe, you know, Dragic against some bigs, he's certainly going to work those guys, and you would need to worry about, like, foul trouble long-term. But if it's Grant Williams playing 10, 15 minutes, that's not really a huge deal. Um, you know, Tyler Hero can work some stuff one-on-one. Jimmy's obviously going to have those opportunities. But if, if you're talking about do we live with that or do we live with these guys popping off for tons of threes and getting bam rolls to the rim, I, I think you take your chances with the switching about as much as you can tolerate. As, as much as you can stomach that, I think that would be a, a pretty feasible strategy. Right. I mean, you have to wonder, maybe the game would have been different if those canter minutes were Grant Williams switching instead. Uh, we're pushing up against the time limit we like to keep here. One thing I want to ask, we haven't really talked about him too much. Are you worried at all? I don't want this to to go into just straight takery here, even though I know deep down you have some hot takes, Rob. Are you worried at all about Jason Tatum? He missed his last seven shots in game one. Game two, he didn't even attempt uh, any shots, I believe, in the last five minutes or so uh, in clutch time. Are you worried about him at all? Because I I don't think Miami is taking him away in, in a special way necessarily. I'm not worried, but it is weird. Like, it's certainly notable. And, you know, in game one, it was just, like, the way that they were ISOing Kemba Walker over and over and over. In game two, you're right. Like, they were searching for stuff, but he was kind of floating in and out. He wasn't wasn't quite in the spots that you would want him to be in. And some of that is the zone. You know, just by the nature of the thing, that's what this defense is designed to do to take away basically, like, blunt force offense. It's just harder to run that kind of thing. So if you're talking about, like, we need to get looks for Jason Tatum, in you know late in games it's going to get more difficult to do that but this is this is you know this kind of space is where you separate yourself from one of the pretty good stars to one of the superstar players in those kinds of arenas it's it's an area where you know jason tatum is different from someone like Kawhi leonard necessarily you know maybe not the most topical example given what happened to the clippers (laughs) but like that's where you would want to see him elevate a little bit and find ways to get open to get more involved and again, like Brad Stevens is a creative coach. He's, they're going to find ways to do that. But the fact that they haven't even tried it or gone to it or, you know, tried to make him more of an elemental part of the offense, I think is certainly notable. This is such a close series. I think it's still a toss up. And I think if and when Boston is able to find an answer to the zone, you know, whatever that means, even if it's just hitting a couple threes and getting Miami out of it, the sooner they can get to, you know, I think Tatum hunting some of Miami's lesser defenders, whether it's Dragic, Hero, or Robinson, uh, late in games, I think this series could flip very quickly. Well, Rob, this was a lot of fun. Man, I feel like we could talk about this one game uh, for an hour. This went by quick, but just a wild and, and just incredibly compelling series so far. Oh, for sure. And we'll, you know, we'll go an extra 40 minutes offline on Grant Williams if you want. <laughs> yeah, we'll do we'll do that. We'll save that for the for the Patreon, for the OnlyFans, for the OnlyFans. <laughs> don't Google that, Rob. I don't I know you don't know what that means. Don't worry. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.